0: I wanted to read the second half of Hebrews 6 only because I know that the bulk of our time this morning is actually going to be spent on the first half. And I wanted you to have rattling around in your brain the second half because the second half is the point. The second half is the thrust of what the writer is trying to convey to this church. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because the portion under consideration this morning out of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6, I think I would. And this is not like newsflash. This is probably one of the most misread, mishandled, misinterpreted, and misconstrued passages, and not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible. And I went, if, if it were just me, if I, went, if I had my druthers, I would skip over this passage. We just go straight on, keep on moving. Because there's a lot of difficulty in what we're going to cover this morning. I don't mean to scare you. I don't mean to get you to check out. Actually, I think what I want you to do is just be okay with some of the tension that we're going to cover. Be okay with some of the uncomfortableness. Because out of all of that, I think there's such a comforting truth to behold out of Hebrews 6. Which is fascinating. Because if you look at the history of the church... This, especially the first 12 verses, have been the sort of the spark of loads of church debates, religious debate, theological arguing. And all of that has done nothing but leave people in pews just pulling out their hair in frustration because what does this mean? And you have really good faithful theologians saying one thing and really good faithful theologians saying another thing. So what are we talking about? Well, look at verse 4. I'm just going to read it and then we'll, we'll just kind of go through it. The writer says this, For it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for the land that has drunk the rain and that often falls on it and produces a crop, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, reading that more than likely you have a lot of questions. And good. There's a lot of questions that can be stirred up by this particular section. Who are these who are enlightened? Are they genuine believers? Or are these sort of like Christians in name only? Or do they have just a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge? Or are these genuine Bible-believing Christians? And what does it mean to fall away? Does that mean that they, can, that they lost their salvation? And does that mean that I can lose my salvation too? And if that's true, how do I know if I'm on that path? How do I know that I'm not falling away too? And when he says that it's impossible to restore them to repentance, does that mean that it's it's without question impossible? And how does all of these questions, and how does this passage jive with the rest of the Bible? Especially all the places where it talks about we are eternally secure in Christ. Maybe you have even more questions. That are rattling around in your brains right now. And that's okay. Good. You're not alone. <laughs> that's where I've been basically the last several days. And in fact, those who often read this passage, I would say, are greatly confused by it. They're troubled by it. If you just read it for what it says on the surface, it's a troubling passage. And I don't think it helps. I don't think it helps at all, in fact, when there's <laughs> there's been dozens of preachers who have used, and I will dare I say, weaponized these particular verses in ways that have made even true Christians sometimes lose all sense of faith and hope and assurance. You can read it. There are too many sermons from bygone eras to count where preachers have used this passage as like their own personal mallet to beat people into better behavior. You better... You better straighten up and fly right or you might risk losing your salvation and then you can never repent again. It's a law-centered message that is often given to make people live better, to live right or what have you. I think what it leaves churchgoers is it leaves them feeling defeated and exhausted and displaced. Reading this passage can do that. (laughs) But the Hebrew writer is in no way, I would say, looking to make confessing Christians somehow come to doubt their confession. He's not looking for them to sort of examine their life and, man, I, I, don't, I must be falling away. He's not looking for them to question their assurance. Neither is he meaning to take a jackhammer to their faith, nor to yours. Rather, as we've read already, what is he trying to do? Solidify their faith in what? The anchor of their soul. Jesus Christ, their true and better high priest. Again, situate this within his larger conversation. Jesus is better, he's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua, he's better than Aaron, he's even better than Melchizedek, which he hasn't even gotten into, but he wants to get into, because he wants to show them how great of a high priest that we have, and Jesus. And he says, all those high priestly things that you've put your faith into, Jesus is better than all of them. He's better than that. You can put your faith in that. That's what I think he's trying to show them. We get lost through all of this debate. We get lost in a lot of this confusing language and wording that the writer here uses. But I don't think he's looking to make people confused. And again, I say this. This is just, you know, like inside baseball. This is full disclosure. I have spent this whole week wrestling with these verses. Really wrestling. Wrestling over what they mean and what they should mean and what does it sound like they mean. And I'm not here standing before you telling you that I've solved 2,000 years of church debates in the span of five days. <laughs> I'm not telling you that. I'm just telling you this, that I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And the Spirit, I think, has brought me to this place where I can stand before you and with conviction say, Here's what I believe is what the Word says. So if you, if you go away from me or disagreeing with me, that's fine. We can still be friends. <laughs> Or at least I hope so. But I want to unpack this really methodically. Because I want you to see maybe even my train of thought and how the Spirit was working on me to show us how we get to that anchor. How do we get to that anchor in verse 19 from these verses here where he's talking about falling away. So to do that, there's, we have to ask some questions. Some basic questions about this text. Number one, who is the audience? Who's the audience? Who is the writer talking to? because if we know who the audience is that'll kind of help us with the rest of the warning. Number 2, what are the stakes? What's that stake here for these who are uh, potentially falling away? What's on the line for them? What are they what are they leaving? What are they what are they falling away from? And number 3 then, where's the solution? Where should they look? These ones who are on this verge of falling away or what have you. Uh, where should they look for hope and assurance? I think how we get to that is going to be so, so important and crucial for us to see this morning. So, the audience. Let's look at that. Who is this writer talking to? Who is he talking about? when he references this group that he says is enlightened. I think this is really critical for understanding what he's talking about here. Notice again verse 4. 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Here in verses 4 and 5, the writer offers a series of, we could say, descriptions of what it looks like to live the life of faith. Enlightened, tasted, shared, and what, they're, and what they've been enlightened by. And what, they're, what, they've, what they've tasted. And what they're sharing in. All of these things seem to reference someone who is genuinely saved. If you just read it. If you just read those verses. You have to say, this is talking about a Christian. And indeed I think so. Because if you... If you want to argue that verses 4 and 5 and these quote-unquote enlightened people are head-knowledge-only Christians, so they've been entertained by the gospel, but they haven't ever had a, a gospel awakening moment, if you want to argue that, then you have to redefine the word tasted. That's a really important word in this verse. As he says, what? They have tasted the heavenly gift. If you want to say that this is talking about a Christian in name only, so not a true believer, you would have to say that this word tasted only means something partially experienced. You would have to say it's, you know, you, you taste it, but you don't digest it. You don't swallow it. That's what you would have to say. That's just a little taste. Which doesn't make sense. Only because there's the same word back from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, where we're told that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Same word in both places. Which is just to say... Jesus didn't partially experience death. He really died. He really went to death for us. For us on the cross. He tasted death. Experienced it to its fullest extent. Where literally there was a corpse of Jesus in the tomb for a couple days before he rose from the grave. Hallelujah, right? He tasted death. Therefore, this Tasting of the enlightened is a genuine participation in something. As he says, it's a genuine participation in the heavenly gift, the influx of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to that word enlightened. Which again, you would have to do the same thing. If you want to argue that verses 4 and 5 are talking about Christians in name only and so not true believers, you would have to say that this word enlightened has to be redefined. What it means here is to be given light, literally to be illuminated. And this is not like, you know, a light on a dimmer. So the light is dim, it's like really faint. It's, it's not a light that's partially on. The reference, the illusion here of this word lightened is a light popping on in a room that was previously dark. Everything brightens up. It's reminiscent of Colossians chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13 where Paul talks about how we who are part of the household of faith have been invited to what? Share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And we share in that light because we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the light. And we've been brought into that new kingdom by who? The light of the world. That's what he's alluding to. Which is to say again very briefly that these who have been enlightened, these who have tasted, these who have shared and all of these wonderful gospel rich things they're descriptions that we could use on ourselves this is who we are we, this morning, we are the enlightened of God. We have tasted in the heavenly gift. We, even here this morning, are tasting of the goodness of the word of God that comes forth out of the power of God. That's what it means to be in the church. That's what it means to be a Christian at all. We, who've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we have been made to share in all of these incredible bounties of the gospel. That's what it, that's what it means To be a part of the church. We who've been justified have been made to enjoy by the Spirit of God the blessings of the justified life. Meaning, it means living in fellowship with the Spirit, as he talks about, and again in these verses, enjoying the, the fruits of God's Word with fellow believers, sharing in that heavenly gift with fellow believers as we gather, as we assemble with one another in places just like this. The audience is a group of believers, a group of justified believers who've been Told and they've been made aware that the, the justified life is a life of blessedness. And that blessing, that blessedness comes from doing life with other justified believers. That's who he's referencing. Now don't mistake me and we're going to get there. I think there, are a, there is a real dynamic where there are real Christians in name only sitting in pews. That's a real thing. I just don't think that that's what the writer's talking about in verses 4 and 5. I think he's talking about real believers, talking to real Christians who've really been enlightened, who've really tasted of the heavenly gift that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, who then gives them the Holy Spirit. That's who he's talking to. So what's the stakes then? What's at stake for these believers, these saved, enlightened, justified Christians? What's at stake for them, as he says, who have suddenly fallen away. When he says that, our alarm bells probably immediately go off because this sounds devastating and it sounds decimating. Can I just say right at the outset, I'm going to play, play my full cards. He's not talking that you can lose your salvation. By no means is he saying that. Your salvation cannot be lost. And I think the bulk of scripture is clear on this. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You want to talk about being held fast? That those who believe in the heavenly gift have been made to taste the heavenly gift. As we have just here read. They have been given the gift of eternal life. And God holds those who have been given the gift of eternal life in his hand. He holds us fast. Romans 8, 38, those wonderful verses, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, can, you get the sense that Paul is just reaching at straws for anything else he could include in these verses. Nothing can do it. Not this, nor this, nor this, nor that. Nothing can do it. If we could lose our salvation, I'm pretty sure we would. I'm pretty sure I would. Maybe maybe you're higher on the spiritual scale than me, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I would lose it. But I will go to my grave Clinging to one thing. I will cling to the fact that Jesus has offered his life for mine. And therefore, that's where my righteousness is found. That's where everything is found. And he offers it to us by grace. And therefore, I am kept by grace. I am saved by grace. Grace will lead us home. That's that, what that song Amazing Grace means. Amazing grace saves wretches like us and it leads wretches like us uh, to glory where he is. is grace all the way from point A to Z. There's no one little smidgen of your life where, where your, your heavenly standing is on you. And if you don't do it, you're going to lose your salvation. No. And I don't even think that's what the writer here is talking about. At least not about salvation. So what is he talking about? If we believe that we cannot lose our salvation because of the grip that God has on those who believe in his name and what his son did, then what is he talking about by falling away? This is where all the difficulty is, I think. Falling away is one word in the Greek. And it is only used here. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the, in the scriptures. And it means literally to apostatize or to, I think, even more enlighteningly, it means to defect. Which constitutes a really deliberate, really definitive decision to turn away from something. To defect from something, you have to be a part of something, and then you turn away from it. Like in the 60s and 70s, which, when you saw scores of Russian defectors fleeing the Soviet state of Russia. They're defecting from one nationality to seek refuge, sanctuary somewhere else. They're defecting from something to something else. But the key, I think, there is that in order to defect from something, they had to be in association with that thing beforehand. Which, again, I think gives credence to the fact that these are genuine believers who are here choosing to defect. From what? What are they defecting from? Well, let's use the example that the writer just used again. What's the most important rule about anything in scripture? Context is king. What's the context of this moment in which he's encouraging these believers in this church, these Hebrew Christians, when he's encouraging them to hold fast? What is the example he's just used? Well, go back to chapters 3 and 4. In Hebrews, we're not going to read them, but just think about what he does there. We covered them several weeks ago. He uses a really important event in the historical life of the people of Israel. He uses that event at Kadesh Barnea. That comes out of Numbers 13 and 14. And he's using that event to stir them to what? Greater belief in the promise. But that event in Numbers 13 and 14 is what? Is that moment when the people of God come to the borders of the promised land. And what happens? They make a conscious decision not to enter the promised land. Remember the old song? I'm not going to sing it. Ten spies went to Canaan. Or twelve spies went to Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. If you remember that song. That's the story. The ten spies, they come back and they deliver their bad report. that Full of talk about giants and how we can never overcome them. And it's, it's a land that we cannot, we cannot overtake this land. We can't do it. Moses, why did you lead us here? Why did you do this to us? You brought us to this place, and here's all these giants. We can't do it. And so they disbelieve. They are thrown into dismay. And what happens? An entire generation is forbidden from entering that land of promise, and instead are what? Forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Because they were brought to this place. This juncture where God was inviting them in. To this place that he is, is everywhere called what? All, it's always called a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a place of abundance. It's a place of blessing. And because they didn't believe. They were refused entry. Hebrews 3.19. That's exactly what he says. He says. So we see that they were unable to enter. Because of unbelief. That promise. Remember, the ten bad spies are giving the report. And what are Caleb and um, Joshua doing? They're, They're there. They're trying to convince them. No, we can believe because of who our God is. We can believe in what his promises is. Let us go. Let us take this land. They are filled with enormous passion and conviction of what? But who their God is. And because of who their God is, they believe that the promise is true. But instead... You come to this horrible event of turning away from God, and the people are forbidden from entering that land. Now, those who say you can lose your salvation will say that not entering the land of promise means not truly saved. So everyone that wasn't allowed to go in is, must have not been a true believer. But I don't think we can over-spiritualize that event. Because if everyone who didn't enter the promised land wasn't a true believer, what did he do with Moses? Because he wasn't allowed in either. He was forbidden from entering, so he wasn't, he wasn't a believer? No, he, he definitely was. Hebrews 11, we'll talk about that. <laughs> but what did it mean that he wasn't allowed to enter in the promised land? It meant that he was not allowed to participate and share in all that God had in store for his people. No milk and honey for him. The blessings of the land of promise were removed for those who disbelieved the promise. But this is critical. This is really important. Because that did not mean that they were suddenly not God's children. Actually go there. Go to Numbers 14. I want you to see this. I think this is really critical. Numbers 14. I'm going to read verse 20. Remember, Moses goes and intercedes with the Lord and and tries to get him to have mercy on the people who have suddenly made this decision to turn away from God's promise. And what does God decide to do? Notice verse number 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and into the wilderness And yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Did you notice? They were pardoned. They were forgiven. But the consequences of their decision still remained. They were made to feel the consequences of saying, no, I don't believe, God, that what you have in store for me is best. So I'm turning away and going my own way. They were forgiven for that, but they were still made to feel the consequences. They were pardoned by the God of all grace and glory and holiness. I have pardoned you, a declarative word of God. But they were still turned away because of their decision. You see, by disbelieving God's promises, they were falling away. They were defecting. From what? All of the blessings that God was saying, follow me and these are for you. I can't wait for you to enjoy them. I can't wait for you to delight yourselves in them. I can't wait for you to experience them. I want to give them to you. And they defected from them. And I think we can understand that same sort of crisis of unbelief in terms of how the Hebrew writer is talking about it back in our text of Hebrews chapter 6. Because these Hebrew believers, these, these honest, genuine believers in who Jesus Christ is, they're being addressed because of what? They are on the verge of a similar, di- similar disaster. They are justified, they are enlightened, they have the faith they've been preached to, perhaps by Paul, perhaps by others. And now they are being written this letter by this other teacher out of the scriptures. And they'll currently, because of all the persecution, because of all the hatred, because of everything that is swirling around around them, what is happening? They are teetering on the edge of what? Of falling away from the blessings of living the justified life, despite how hard that might be, despite how perilous that might seem. Remember, they're being convinced. You you fall back to Judaism, it's way easier. And here, the writer's saying, Jesus is better. He's better than anything you might be convinced of otherwise. Just like the people of Israel, who entertained that very dismal, very dull report of the ten spies. What was happening to the Hebrew believers? They had grown dull of hearing. Chapter 5, verse 11. Remember, chapter five, verse eleven. Was it say about this? We have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you've become so dull of hearing. I can't even talk to you about what I want to talk to you about because you've become so lazy, so sluggish, and how you've received the word. It caused them to drift away from what they had heard. It caused them to believe that maybe God's promises aren't that sure after all. They had heard the gospel. They had. Received the gospel, they knew the gospel, but somehow they now found themselves on the verge of defecting from the blessings of the gospel. And again, I, don't, don't misunderstand me. I, this is not a loss of salvation. They're not defecting from that. Salvation can't be lost. Your justification is not in question. Your justification is sure because of what Christ has done. Period. If you believe in that, your justification is sure, and I'm going to go to my deathbed saying that. Your justification in Christ is absolutely concrete sure. It's as sure as his blood that dripped from his fingers and his head and his in his feet that fell into Jewish soil. That's how real it is. It is sure for you. But what is here happening? This does suggest this falling away does suggest what? A loss of joy. A loss of purpose, a loss of victory, a loss of blessing. By falling away from the blessings of the justified life, they were missing out on all that God desired that they enjoy. You follow me, you hold fast to me, and there is is something that I cannot wait to give you. That's why the writer over and over again is encouraging them to what? To hold fast. He says that in verse 18. He says it in chapter 3 twice. He says it in chapter 4. He says it in chapter 10. Hold fast to your original confession. Don't lose sight of it by all these dismal, dull reports. Don't lose sight of it by people who are trying to convince you of something else. The blessings of the justified life are just that. They are realized and experienced as we live by faith with other sinners who've been justified. And he's telling them, hold fast to that. The more you rejoice in, the more you rest in, you're a great high priest who has tasted death for you. The more you share in the gift of God and how he gives us his righteousness... The more blessings we will see and receive and enjoy. And by that, don't mistake me again. I'm not talking about, you know, monetary blessings like the TV preachers. If you just throw your little thing in, you'll get blessed. You'll be blessed today. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that you will be blessed with an abundance of purpose and meaning and faith and hope and community and love and peace. That's what I'm talking about. You're searching for that? You're searching for community, you're searching for hope, you're searching for love, you're searching for meaning. I don't know where God has... That comes through this life. The life of faith. Holding fast to this one who desires that you are are given these delights that he cannot wait to give you. God delights in blessing those he justifies... It is a serious matter, I think, if we choose to punt on those blessings. That's why we have those verses in verses 7 and 8. Notice what he says For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I think the illustration here is really insightful. Land with the same rain falling on both lands, both pieces of property. And the one is producing crops of fruit. Great abundance, great harvest, and it leads to even more blessings. And the other, it produces thorns and thistles, which make that land worthless. Which is a callback back to Genesis and the curse of the garden. And all the farmer can do is what? He has to burn that ground before he can ever try to till it again, before he can ever try to sow on it again. You see, these Hebrew believers were at risk of falling away from all the blessings that God desired that they enjoy. That come about when we are living life as the family of God. And some were seriously considering, punting on these these blessings, defecting from them. Some, in fact, had already done so. They had already fallen away. They had already made this decision to turn away from what God was holding out to them again. And this, as you see, is a result of what? A very dim, very lazy, very dull approach to the word of God. Hebrews 5.11. Again, what does he say? About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. I can't even do it. I can't even get it across to you, because you've become so dull of hearing. God calls us to what? To press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're called to endure, to persevere in our lives of faith, not because our justification is at stake, because but because all of the blessings that God has in store for us who live the justified life, they're at stake. Hebrews 10.36, notice what he says. in the Same, similar passage. Hebrews 10.36, for you have need of endurance. Why? So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The audience is a group of believers who have been justified and enlightened by the word of God and the spirit of God. The stakes are losing the blessings that come. That, are, that accompany that life. What's the solution? The warning is an urgent one. This warning is a critical one. This is a. These believers. This church is reaching critical mass you might say. And the writer is intending for the church to take it to heart. He does not want them to repeat the same debacle of unbelief that appeared in like their forefathers. Where they made a decision not to enter into what God was holding out for them to rejoice in. But he also does not want to leave them with just those abysmal words of warning. Like any good pastor, he comes up beside them and he gives them these incredible words of encouragement. Again, notice verse 9. Of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here he shares what? He is confident that this faithful, the, the, the fateful end that he just described, that's not going to be your end. I'm confident of something else for you. I am sure. I've seen it. You're already bearing the marks of God's spirit working into working in your life. There is better things in store. Why? Because you're bearing fruit. <laughs> And you don't put your hope in the fruit. You put your hope in the fact that the one who is making the fruit to be born is the one who has justified you in the first place. And he says, I am sure of better things for you. God's word is already having its effect on you. You can be confident in that. You can be confident in what was God doing. Why? Because the promise was sure. Therefore, instead of falling away, instead of defecting from these blessings... Because of all of the calamity and all of the trial that was in front of them, what is he doing? He's encouraging them, as he says in verse 11, to hold fast and full assurance of hope. Because those who held fast, they would inherit the promises, just like those who were made to enter into the land of promise. They would be made to rest and all of the blessings that God had in store for them, that he wanted to give them. And the reason they could hold fast, the reason they could have full assurance of hope, is why? Because of who was making these promises. You see, it's one thing to be told to press on, to carry on, to keep calm and carry on by friends when other friends are falling away. It's another thing to be pointed to the rock-solid ground of belief, which is what this writer does here at the end of this whole discussion. Again, if you we don't we won't read the verses, but in verses thirteen through sixteen, he brings up that really familiar character, Abraham. Father Abraham, we had many sons. And many sons who had Father Abraham. He's the clearest example of just how sure, just how concrete God's word of promise really is. And in fact, you can you don't have to go there, but if you were to look at Abraham's life, his life would be very much like this. The promise that was given to Abraham was what? Uh, his name would be great. Genesis 12, he's, uh, God comes to Abraham and he gives them this promise. Your name is going to be great. I'm going to give you offspring. Your offspring is going to be as numberless as the stars in the sky or the sands in the sea. No one is going to be able to know how many, how many children you have. And from all, of the, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed out of your line. He gives him that wonderful promise, that wonderful covenant that he enters into with Abraham. And how does he guarantee that promise? How does he make sure that Abraham can believe it? Well, as it says in Hebrews 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had nowhere greater greater by whom to swear, he swore... By himself. Hmm, that's interesting. So when God desired to show verse 17 more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. What's he talking about there? God swearing by himself. When you enter into an agreement with someone or someone, what do you when you sign your name, that's almost like you're swearing on yourself, My name is as good as my word, and you can be sure that I'm going to fulfill all the payments, or I'm going to live up to my end of the bargain. You're giving your pledge that this is going to be true, whatever agreement you're entering into. If you think about that, think about if to go back to the, the event of Genesis 15. You don't have to turn there, but just think about this for a second. God is confirming this covenant, this agreement, this promise with Abraham. Hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless you. Out of, out of you, all the nations are going to be blessed because of who is going to come from your line, a.k.a. Jesus. I'm going to bless you by that. You're going to be, your name is going to be great, all that kind of stuff. How does he confirm it? Well, What happens is they, they get this bull, a steer, and they cut it in half. And the sign was what? You cut it in half and you walk through the bull with the sign being what? That may whatever was done to this bull be done to me if I break my word. Which is harsh and alarming. (laughs) Because you're you're pledging your allegiance to something and saying, I am being very serious about the covenant I am entering into. And who is the only one who walks through the bull in Genesis 15? It's only God. Abraham falls asleep. (laughs) And the Spirit of God goes through the bull, which is to say what? God swears on himself. You want to know how sure your promise is? It's held by God's word. His name is the signatory name at the end of the agreement and that we can be sure of. That's how sure the promise is. That's how sure God's word is. That's how sure your hope is. That's how sure your salvation is. It's sure because of who sweared on it. Jesus is not only the promise giver. He's the promise keeper. And the burden of fulfilling that promise was squarely on his shoulders. If you look at Abraham's life. It was, if it was on his. He would have squandered it almost instantly. He bumbled. Stumbled over himself. Indeed all the rest of the patriarchs did. All the rest of the characters in the Bible did. And I think that's the point. All that Abraham had to do was what? Was to believe in what God said was true. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in God's word of promise. Even when that promise looked in doubt. Hey, you're going to have children, but you're 99 and you don't have any yet. We need to work on something, God. That seems a little doubtful. <laughs> but He believed. You see, the point is what? The gospel of God and his love for us in Christ is just as sure as the promise given to Abraham. It is sure because God swears on himself. All of the the, the promises and the purposes of God, they spring from what? His unchangeable character, meaning that it cannot be revoked. It cannot be rescinded. God in Christ has promised to what? To rescue the lost, to redeem the world, and to make it new. The fulfillment of all of those things is founded who? In Christ himself, who is the, the yes and amen of all of God's promises. He is the hope that's set before us. Your salvation, my friends. And the blessings that go along with it are anchored in that. In the infinite work of Christ. Who, as we're told here, notice again, verse number 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) See, he's pointing them back to, again, the priestly work of Christ. Where that great high priest on the day of atonement, back in the times of the Israelites, he would enter into that holy of holies on one day of year and make an atoning sacrifice for the people's sins. And here he's saying, we have that in Jesus, and he's done it one time forever. That's how sure your salvation is. That's how sure you can be confident of what God is doing. It's because Christ has entered into the veil, and he's not just the high priest who conducts the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. The blood that's sprinkled on the altar is not a lamb's. It's God's blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ who comes there and he dies on the tree and he dies for you and me. Therefore, he is making you have strong encouragement. Your promise, his promises are true. You can hold fast to them. Your anchor is sure because your anchor is Christ. You can almost, I, I, I almost get this, this sense that, that the Hebrew writer is almost taking up the role of Caleb and Joshua. Remember back from Kadesh Barnea where they have the ten spies and they're giving their bad report? You, we can't go in there. We can't do that. God's not true. How dare you, Moses? And the two spies are doing what? Caleb and Joshua. We can believe it because of who God is. And the writer is doing what? The same thing. You can believe in the promises of God because of who God is and because of who he's sworn on. He's sworn on himself that he's going to bring these things about. Therefore, hold fast. Even when it looks like these promises are in doubt, you can hold fast because of who God is. It doesn't matter what's coming your way. You have a sure and steadfast anchor in Christ. Alone, he anchors your life and your soul so that you receive his blessings and we only need to believe. We don't have to doubt his word. Even when his promises appear to be more than a little questionable because God is a man, a God of his word. Sometimes we go through enormous seasons of upheaval Seasons of upheaval where it feels like, uh, is God's word really true? You know, he said this, but he doesn't seem to be living up to this. There at that moment, what's happening? You are being tempted, tempted by some ten bad spies. Tempted by a dismal word of God to disbelieve in what God has for his people. He doesn't promise his people that it's always going to be hunky-dory but what does he do promise he promises that if they hold fast he's leading them to a place of abundance and whether that's here or whether that's in the next life the promise is sure my friends the promise is sure we can hold fast to christ we can hold fast to our anchor our anchor is sure we don't have to doubt the work that God has done in Christ. We don't have to doubt what he has accomplished for us. It's been accomplished forever for you. If you go out of here this morning, I want you to be sure of one thing, that your justification cannot be lost. It's not going anywhere. Because Christ has anchored it in himself. And your life of blessing too. Again, that doesn't mean everything is going to be rainbows and unicorns. And your bank account is going to look suddenly like seven figures long. But it does mean something else that you're going to have a peace that passes all understanding. And when trials come your way, though Satan should buffet, though enemies might challenge, though friends might stab you in the back, though people that you were close to, they suddenly fall away, you have an anchor that is sure. You have a hope that is set before you and that hope is Christ alone. His promises are true. Do you believe in the promises of God for you this morning? Your anchor is sure, my friends. Let us pray.